The information provided in this presentation and during this webinar should not be construed as legal advice. Attending this webinar does not constitute or create an attorney-client relationship between you and Spillman Thomason Battle or any attorney associated with the firm. Material distributed during this webinar is done so with the understanding that the author, publisher, and distributor are not rendering legal or other professional advice on specific facts or matters and, accordingly, assume no liability whatsoever in connection with its use. Thanks so much, everyone, uh, for uh, being here with us uh, for um, one of a continuing series of webinars that we have hosted through the COVID-19 task force. Uh, I'm uh, one of the co-chairs of that task force. My One of the other co-chair is Eric Kinder. He's with us today as well. We're both in Charleston, West Virginia, separated by several miles uh, and working from home. Um, we uh, we want to take this time uh, as governors across our footprint uh, and, and throughout the country have relaxed and begin, begun to relax some of the restrictions placed on businesses. Um, I want to, you know, you know, provide you with some information as to why, why, why to pay attention. Um, first, uh, the um, there's never uh, a uh, a disaster uh, without uh, resultant litigation, and this is going to be no different. Um, it it will be delayed a little bit in in earnest because a lot of courts have have barriers on civil cases being filed and served, et cetera. But make no doubt, like with every other disaster, natural and man-made, uh, there will be an onslaught of litigation that we haven't thought of before or we haven't really experienced before, and this is going to be no different. Some, some jurisdictions are open uh, already for business, litigation business, and I've, we've got uh, cases for you, and we can get you the case of the complaints if you'd like, uh, but there are a number of cases uh, that have already been filed across the country that are COVID-19. Uh, related. Um, a lot of them um, stem from nursing homes and essentially um, giving you an example of one, this is out in the state of Washington, uh, a plaintiff named Deborah de Los Angeles versus Life Care Centers of America. That's a wrongful death suit against the nursing home operating entity as well as the ownership entity, as well as some individuals uh, who administrators who made some decisions concerning or alleging rather negligence uh, in COVID-19 containment response uh, and safety measures. Um, there was a wrongful death lawsuit filed uh, against Walmart last week outside of Chicago. Um, the case is Evans, uh, the Evans case where there was a wrongful death uh, suit against Walmart from the estate of an employee who alleges that there was basically misconduct in ignoring workplace safety measures that had been recommended by the CDC, the Illinois Department of Health, um, Etc. Um, there, there was uh, Smithfield, uh, the, the the port company, um, who had, had been in the news a lot uh, for having a number of workers uh, test positive and immediate closures, etc. Uh, but they were the allegation, at least uh, in this class action lawsuit, is that Smithfield wasn't adhering to safety standards, wasn't allowing for enough. Um, PPE equipment didn't have the right PPE equipment, was forcing people to work without PPE, um, didn't allow enough hand washing time, et cetera. So, and then um, again, these are just a sampling of them. Then there was a Detroit um, area nurse uh, in retaliation, who's asserted a retaliatory discharge um, case uh, for making comments about the understaffing 
uh, the, the lack of PPE and the dangerous conditions of the workforce. Again, these are not new concepts, but this is a new vehicle by which uh, they will come about. So as a result, um, it is wildly important that employers not, well, first of all, that employers read uh, the orders and the relaxation orders and pay attention to those requirements because those requirements could be, and those guidelines put out by the CDC and the government could be the basis for the standard of care for employers going forward, particularly if you have an employee who gets sick and or dies. And there will be no shortage of these types of litigation. So while we're all happy that there is, at least for the time being, a relaxation of the government imposed stay at home orders, et cetera, um, employers who are returning individuals to work, whether it be from a complete shuttering and shutdown of the business uh, to uh, a situation where you've been open but have had only essential uh, people in place uh, working and then the rest working from home, if we're returning. Uh, there, we need to be very mindful of the fact that we have to be careful uh, coming back. So we're going to have logistical considerations we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about legal considerations and how we set up a process to make sure that this transition into either returning, reopening or bringing employees back if we've been open from working abroad uh, is done so um, seamlessly and minimizing the, the amount of risk and providing for the most efficient uh, means of doing that. As a practical matter, there are um, guidelines at both uh, the state and the federal levels that we need to be mindful of. From the federal um, level, the uh, current administration has uh, dubbed it opening up America again, uh, and there are a set of guidelines um, which instruct employers how to um, implement policies, protocols, and procedures um, in fairly general terms. Um, it, it defers to industry best practices. It is not a list that you must check every box, but again, it is a list of what the government deems to be best practices. And if we're, if we're an employer, we, we're not going to implement one in light of the litigation I just told you about and the fact that this could be a standard of care, we better have a good reason, a documented good business reason why we are not going to follow the federal guidelines. So again, are these requirements? No, they're guidelines. But are they something that we need to consider and rule out methodically in a science-based or business-based manner? Yes. So some of the um, some of the federal guidelines include requirements that employers coming back continue to maintain social distancing, uh, provide protective equipment, consider implementing temperature checks with associated privacy issues associated with those temperature checks for people coming to work on a regular basis and or third parties coming onto their board, uh, coming uh, onto their premises, that employers um, uh, sanitize their workplaces and either shut down, modify, or heavily disinfect common and high traffic areas, uh, consider to use business travel. And we're going to talk about all these in detail uh, throughout the course of this uh, this webinar, and we also encourage you to ask questions about them in detail as we go along, and we'll try to answer in real time. But essentially, the federal guidelines say you've got, you know, you've got to consider these things, and if you're not going to do them, there better be a good reason why. Um, there are also um, state guidelines. I'll, I know we've got folks from different states here, and, and um, our st state has already pushed them out. I think North Carolina is in the process of doing so. Uh, but we can update those and have updated, uh, we'll continue to update those rather on our task force webpage. Uh, but in West Virginia, for instance, um, 
Phase two uh, begins on Monday, provided that we don't have a situation between now and Monday where the ratio of, of new cases uh, um, versus tested people uh, continues to stay under 3%. On Monday, for small businesses, which are 10 or fewer, we haven't, we haven't got the, the, the all clear to, to open, reopen larger businesses, but for smaller businesses of 10 and under, including you know, uh, hair salons, nail shops, uh, gyms, etc. Or sorry, uh, uh, places where you can go to get uh, small, smaller medical practices, etc. West Virginia has said that in those situations, employers need to quote telework whenever possible. So continuing the teleworking model, they need to consider adopting screening employees. Again. Um, We'll talk about the methods of screening and the legal associ uh, matters associated with those. Uh, they need to have a policy in place for how to handle sick and COVID-19 positive and or being tested for COVID-19 uh, employees. Um, there needs to be, before they open, um, a comprehensive um, plan that addresses social distancing, PPE, um, provides for isolation, testing and contact tracing for employees who test positive uh, and being able to figure out where they've worked and with whom they've worked and report that back to the county um, health department. It's got to be sanitizing uh, plan and protocol. And again, echoing the, the federal government, limiting the use uh, of common areas and high traffic areas and or a heightened disinfection routine for that, like kitchens, break rooms, et cetera. So if you're going to have those open, you got to have a written plan in place of of limiting the number of people there and disinfectant and that employers must also continue to consider um, uh, non-essential business travel limitations. So those are the general federal and state guidelines for employers to open up. Again, larger employers over 10 in West Virginia have not been given the red light. This is for smaller employers, but these also apply to those essential businesses who have been open through this, but who have been utilizing um, teleworking, et cetera. So these are the types of guidelines we're going to talk about today. They are the current body of, of law, if you will, that we'll need to consider. Uh, and we're going to do that on a, um, um, uh, you know, on a topic by topic basis. Um, essentially in West Virginia, um, again, that, that mirrors the federal, um, guidelines. Uh, the stay-at-home order uh, will be replaced by safer-at-home order uh, on Monday, May the 4th, absent some kind of, of uh, change in the reporting percentages. So it will be safer-at-home. Um, the um, the safer-at-home order uh, will be effective, again, for smaller employers who can open up and for all of us who have been essential businesses and uh, continuing um, to uh, continue to operate, albeit with a reduced uh, workforce on site. So with all that guideline, those guidelines in place, uh, Eric, where in the heck does an employer start to try to get their hands around the protocol uh, for opening up safely in accordance with both the state and federal guidelines? Well, thanks, Kevin, and good morning, everyone. Uh, you know, the first step is putting together a team of folks. Now, how big is that team? Well, it Frankly, it depends on how big your office is. Uh, if you're a shop of 10 people, it may not need to be more than you know, one or two people. If you are um, an industrial facility with several hundred employees, well, it's going to need to be a bit more robust. 
the key here is just making sure there is somebody, probably the office manager, the plant manager, if you're in an industrial setting, who is going to be the lead and the head of it and putting together folks that have operational expertise. So you're going to want somebody from HR, especially if you're a larger facility, to handle the employee questions, be in charge of some of the social distancing measures. You're going to want a safety hygiene person um, to be in charge of some of the disinfection issues, the cleanliness issues, somebody from an operations aspect to help on understanding how all of this works. If you are a unionized workforce, you're probably going to want either a representative from the union or at least a lot of communication with the union to avoid issues so that you are in communications. And make sure everybody knows who is on that team, how to contact people on that team. And then once you have that team established, you're going to want to put together, we've been calling it a playbook. And the idea here is all of the guidelines, all of the plans are being put together in one place. And that way there's one place that you know to look for all of the issues that are going to come up. A lot of these we're going to talk about. We're happy to work with you. Uh, on developing that playbook. We've got a lot of protocols already in place, but the idea of just having one book ready, and frankly, don't make that playbook a COVID-19 only playbook. A lot of the things we're gonna talk about here are going to have applicability, uh, I hate to say, in a future pandemic situation, just part of being the new normal. So once you have that team together, probably the first thing to do is take stock what do you have on hand? Uh, all of the federal guidelines, all of the state guidelines that we have seen are requiring hygiene measures to be in place. And that means making sure that you have soap, but more importantly, because all offices have that at some extent, having the proper amount of hand sanitizer disinfectant on hand. If you are going to be in a position where you're going to have employees interacting with the public, you're going to wanna to make sure that you've got appropriate PPE, masks, face shields, gloves, things like that. Um, most of what we have seen on this particular virus, gloves are useful, but not great because it is not a, a virus that is typically absorbed through the skin and people that have gloves are often then, what you've seen from the World Health Organization, they don't take the necessary precautions. I have gloves on, I'm safe. Well, if you have gloves on and you're still taking the glove up to your, uh, your face and your eyes and your mouth, it isn't doing you a darn bit of good. So bear that in mind when you're establishing those numbers. Figure out what you have and probably most importantly, figure out what sort of lead time you need so that you don't run out. Most of the supply chains are working themselves out pretty nicely now and it's a very handy you still don't want to be in a position where all of a sudden you're down to the last couple of tidbits of the hand sanitizer and you know you need to make sure that you have that available for folks. Also, we talked about the non-touch thermometers. All the state guidelines, federal guidelines, they really advise checking folks for temperature as they come in. We'll go into that. But even if you decide, you know, I don't want to do that for whatever reason, and our recommendation is that you do, you're going to want to at least have one non-touch thermometer on site just in case anybody falls ill in the workplace. So you're going to want to be able to take that proper measure. 
Next step. Hey, Once Eric? you know what you have, yeah, Kevin. Can I interrupt one second? And I should have I should have covered this on the front end. Uh, but um, what what I would what we're recommending, and and like Eric said, we've done a number of these handbooks uh, and these playbooks rather um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, particularly in the Midwest, where different employers are opening up, et cetera. Um, one thing we're preaching uh, because of these litigation concerns about uh, or alleging negligence in the efforts we made is. More than ever, um, it is important to document the work of this committee, uh, this return to work team, and their efforts. And so the, the playbook that Kinder and I just finished for, a, for an auto parts manufacturer was what, Kinder, 40 pages, 50? Yeah, at least. I mean, we, ki we, we killed some trees uh, with that one, some virtual trees. Well, digital trees. Electronic, digital trees, yeah. But... Um, but the, the, the document and the playbook had uh, in place where we would insert our spreadsheets, Word documents, et cetera, to evidence uh, and, and memorialize all of these efforts, including um, you know, project, written projections on supplies necessary, written updates on planned lead time and restocking, evidence of how much uh, we had on hand, uh, whether or not we had thermometers and whether or not they were utilized, et cetera. So, Overarching all of this, and, and Eric is spot on in terms of what we need to do, um, I would add to it a, a, an increased focus on the need to document all of these efforts. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. And, and probably one of the really critical areas for doing that is if you are in a closed situation now and you are about to reopen, you're going to want to do a complete clean. You can do that in-house if you have the right people. You can contract that out and document what you did. And one of the best ways to do that is if you have a map of the facility, and then, you know, if you're in an office space, it's generally an office map that shows all the offices or uh, cubicles that you have, just run through and do a check off and make sure that you are you know, catching all of the high touch areas, vending machines, um, making sure that you are hitting um, you know, doorknobs, handles, certainly anything in a, in a bathroom facility, cleaning out the HVAC filters, um, or perhaps just replacing them. I don't know how long it's been. Maybe you don't either. If you don't know, maybe not bad time, just go ahead and replace them. You got to do it sometime. Um, and with that, develop a protocol so you know daily who's going to clean what. Employees are going to be responsible for wiping down their keyboards and their desks and their armrests. Um, and you've got somebody that's coming in and taking care of all the common areas and have it documented so that you have that file that you can say, well, no, we cleaned this place out. Here is the checklist. It shows every spot in the building checked off, initialed, and we're doing that every night and we've got a checklist and we're going through that. It is a great defense when somebody comes back and says that you are not doing what you need to do to provide a safe workplace for your employees because we are going to hear as kevin started at the beginning we've already begun to hear that now that only covers sort of day one and by the way make sure people aren't coming into the workplace during the disinfection process because then you got to start it all over again but what do you do kevin going forward to keep the amount of risk limited thanks eric let me uh I will, I will, I know you love when I do this, Kinder. I'm going to back up and answer a question that just came in That's on fine. your slide. Oh, no, All I, right, I, I, I can get that one. I mean, uh, yeah, why don't you grab that? Thermometer. 
That's right. Yeah. Um, those are the uh, the infrared thermometers. I mean, we're all sort of familiar. I'm showing a little bit of my age. The old mercury or alcohol thermometers, and I will talk about the ones that you know you put in your mouth. Well, there's technology that is out that you can either have like little strips that will take a temperature that are disposable. Those are you know really lovely because you can throw those away. Or an infrared, they almost look like a, like a starter's gun. You can point it at the forehead of an employee and it'll register a temperature fairly accurately and nobody is making any sort of physical contact, really limits the risk of spread of disease. That's right. And, and I there don't are, there are a number of those companies. I'm not trying to pitch them. Uh, we don't either. I know. I know of one uh, that is related to a client called Aridea, A R I D E A, and they have a they have a fever kit. And I think other companies have developed those as well uh, that you know work to protect both both parties to the temperature taking process. Uh, and so um, I'm sure there are some out there that uh, that may work well better than others, but at least I'm familiar with those and uh, and, and others around the area. Uh, so. Um, Getting back to your uh, your transition there, Eric, what what do we do to make sure uh, that once we've deep cleaned, that we try to minimize disruption to that deep clean by inter, you know primarily it's by um, putting in place controls for you know if everybody lived at work uh, and some of us feel like we do I'm sure on this call but if everybody literally lived at work didn't go anywhere et cetera and create their own little bubble it'd be fine you know we wouldn't have this problem but but um, you know, fortunately for all of us, uh, we do have homes to go back to, and um, and and we do have vendors that come in, uh, et cetera, and uh, that that we need to put in protocols to limit that in that ingress and egress's effect and impact on maintaining sanitary workplace. So we have to develop written protocols uh, to limit interaction without you know with inbound and um, with inbound deliveries, whether it's the UPS person uh, or what have you. And it's, we, we need to, to be concerned not only about disinfecting the things that, that the articles that are delivered, the mail, the boxes, the delivery, uh, the boxes of wine, which I see from time to time coming in Spillman, which I'm sure for medicinal purposes only, um, but also the people who bring them in and put in a protocol to, you know, to put them in to where we establish drop areas uh, that don't allow, you know, we, we have we have a mail station, uh, you know, on the second floor. We don't want the mail person um, to come up, you know, get in the sign in with a, with whatever uh, front desk person you have, jump in an elevator, touch the outside elevator buttons, touch the inside elevator buttons, go to the second floor, say hi to the receptionist at the second floor, go to the mail room, drop the mail off, and repeat the process on the way out. Uh, that is. Uh, contact that we can eliminate with an outside person outside of our bubble uh, by designating a new drop area, uh, you know, undercover between two doors outside, uh, et cetera. And you need to think about that in the confines of the logistics of your business on how to limit people coming in the door uh, and, and proceeding to make multiple points of contact within your organization. So consider new drop areas, et cetera, and again, document uh, this protocol. Um, some folks, uh, you know, think, um, and I'm in this, man, when I go to, I love going to work to talk to my friends and Eric's one of them. I mean, some of my best friends are there. Uh, and, um, you know, as well as I do that, um, that when we, when folks do get back in the workplace, I haven't been here in six weeks, but when we do, the first thing we're going to do is want to catch up with, um, people who we may have only zoomed with or maybe not seen at all. And, um, that quite frankly is a good way 
to uh, to destroy uh, or, or or diminish the efforts you've taken on the sanitizing front. So I, at least for the time being, and I'm not the most popular guy for advising this, but um, we've got, you know, every client we've talked to has done this. We're going to put prohibitions in place on fraternization. Doesn't mean you can't you can't talk, but hanging over uh, somebody's cubicle or over their desk uh, or being, uh, you know, uh, having seven people eat at the same table in the lunchroom, that that can't be a part of the new normal for the time being. So there needs to be a protocol on fraternization and protocols on limiting the access of of uh, people for uh, who are outside of the organization but coming into it. Hey, Kevin, um, I'm going to throw one of the questions we just got to you. This yep. is phrased in the context of a return to work policy, but if you have been open because you are an essential business, all of these guidelines really should apply to you as well in order to protect your business, right? That's correct. Yeah. So these, these, these apply to two different groups. People who have been completely closed, who were non-essential, or who were essential and chose to completely close, as well as those of us who have been essential businesses but continuing to operate. So there's no, you know, there's no distinction. If we are, if we're an essential business, we've been operating, et cetera. Uh, one, we should have taken, uh, you know, uh, so we talked about this from from day one. We should have taken measures to help. Uh, limit the spread, the idea of, the, of, of spreading within our workplace, but they are now codified for us. Uh, and so, yes, it applies to those essential businesses that have been open, those essential businesses who have chosen to close, and those non-essential businesses who may not have chosen to close, but were closed by the government. They're, apl they're applicable to everybody who's doing business uh, across our country and certainly within um, West Virginia as it is opening up. I, I got another question here. Um, to uh, which is what would be a sound business reason for not implementing temperature checks? Would daily self screenings be acceptable? Uh, great question. I don't frankly know what a, um, a sound business reason would be other than sheer size. And so let's say that I've got you know a shift of 300 employees, and it's gonna it's gonna require me to pay employees another 30 minutes to an hour uh, because you're gonna have to pay employees who you know, who are engaging in that temperature check process because it's necessary for them to work and you're requiring it. I think maybe sheer size um, where it's not, it's not reasonable for us uh, to have um, temperature screenings, maybe a, a business reason for not implementing that. Um, you know, the privacy issue is not going to be one because there are steps we can take to minimize privacy. So I would think size would be one that leaps off the page at me. But it, again, we better make that decision. And then the question, would daily self-screening be acceptable? Yeah, I think daily self-screening is not only acceptable. If you look at what we've got, a, we've got an advanced copy, essentially, of what the governor is going to put out on Monday. Um, and we did it, we did it through non-nefarious means. Uh, but the, um, there are certain screening questions for businesses 10 and under, and for, for larger businesses, it'll be the same, that we have to ask. You know, so that self-screening, we have to ask on a daily basis. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But uh, that was a good question. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd be only uh, cautious that if you're doing that sort of self-screening at home, that's also paid time. That's right. That's exactly if it, I right. mean, if it's more than just a few seconds, I mean, I'd be very careful about that because we will see that lawsuit, I guarantee you. No question. Yeah, we'll get wage and hour lawsuits on that for sure. Other requirements for the protocol under the federal guidelines and West Virginia state guidance is um, that we have to 
but uh, uh, develop and implement a policy for um, trace, you know, for testing and tracing. So we have an employee feeling bad at the, I'm not saying we spillman, I'm saying the we Royal, if we do, uh, if we have a policy or sorry, if we have an employee who's feeling bad, et cetera, goes home, tested for COVID-19, assuming there are tests and we've found that those have been very difficult to come by. Uh, but assuming there are, you get tested, we have to have a process in place to say, uh, yeah, we can trace who this person was in contact with. They are normally on the fourth floor, but they also, you know, violated our fraternization policy and they were hanging over cubicles on the third, second, first floors, et cetera. Uh, we have to have a policy by which we can, we can trace um, and work with the health, health department uh, on um, employees who have tested positive and who, and who they've come in contact with. And so I may have employers say, Kevin, these protocols on non-fraternization are ridiculous. Kevin, you, there's no way we want to shut down our, our break room or our canteen because it's, you know, it's, the, it's the heart and soul of our organization around the water cooler. That's good. You better have a good business reason for doing that. And if you have somebody positive, um, we're going to have to, we're, it's going to be literally impossible for us to delineate which in our workforce may have had contact with that person. And that contact tracing uh, is going to yield a result of our whole organization is potentially at risk, Mr. or Mrs. Health Department official. So again, I think this gives us um, the, the, rat, the reason why uh, these non-fraternization policies and these looking at at common areas need to be uh, addressed at least for the time being. Additionally, uh, we have to have um, a protocol for isolation of uh, individuals who under the CDC guidelines are medium or high risk. Uh, those are set forth, uh, not in the protocols necessarily, because they're going to be depending on the logistics of your workforce. Uh, but if we have someone who's medium high risk and we want them to continue to work and not just give them a leave of absence, et cetera, we need to have a protocol for them to be able to work either at home or on site in a way that does not have them interacting with others. Um, we do, as part of that return to work team, um, recommend that we have someone, pr probably an HR, or if you're large enough to have an environmental health and safety and EH&S person uh, who, who handles um, isolation issues, both in terms of developing the protocols as well as implementing those protocols if we have someone who tests positive. Um, as it relates to um, the screening, the guidelines um, do instruct us to consider temperature checks of employees. That means we have to consider it, which means if we're going to rule it out, we better have a good business reason, as we just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, and that we also have um, a, uh, a series of questions uh, that we ask um, of employees. We'll go into those of, in a moment in West Virginia. Um, we should have a policy that says sick employees can't come into the workplace and you got to go get medical attention if you're sick. And um, any of the symptoms, which are now, I think, nine, right, Eric, um, of the CDC? Yeah, it, um, it, it's, a, it's a list that seems to be gathering force, but I think it is up to nine. Yeah, if they have those, uh, any of those symptoms, and it started out with cough, shortness of breath, et cetera, it now includes chills, headache. Uh, sorry, head fever, and re retains fever, et cetera, but it has others. Um, if they have those, our policy needs, um, to, again, to keep those people out of work, and we can put in place uh, a no return to work policy until you get released by a, a healthcare uh, professional. Uh, Mr. Kidder, tell me about a, some of the logistics of screening. When we talk about the new normal, sorry, do you mind? Um, I just had a, a thought. No. As we talk about the new normal, 
I think creating a policy that encourages people to stay away from work when they are sick post-pandemic is a great model to have. And it sounds like, Eric, you're encouraging people to not work. That's a terrible business model. Well, you may think that you are efficient when you are sick. I will guarantee it, one, you are not. And two, you are just spreading whatever that disease of the moment is, and it may just be a really bad version of the common cold down the road, to the rest of the workforce. I'd rather have one person out for two days than have you know a third to a half of my workforce incapacitated over a period of time over two to three weeks. So I think we can use this to create a culture for the new normal that says, if you're sick, please stay home. Sorry, Kevin. That's right. No, no, good, good, good point, uh, Eric. As it relates to screening, uh, privacy concerns are not out the door. So, um, you know, the first client we had envisioned a situation where uh, there'd be a line of employees and someone with a, uh, with a, a, a touchless, um, looks like a ray gun, but, you know, thermometer shooting at the head, go on, go on, go on. Well, I mean, think about that um, from an employee privacy issue. The person behind you and everybody person behind them likely is going to see them turn you around if it, if it you know, if it flashes red versus green. Uh, that is absolutely not allowed. And we need to have some type, if we're going to have um, and first of all, it needs to be offsite. We don't want to bring them in and then test them. If we're going to do it, let's do it under a, you know an awning or a covered uh, covered uh, portion or, or a vestibule or what have you. And then you need to have some kind of pop-up tent or otherwise or private room where that's where that's done one at a time. So we need to be based on your logistics. We need to be mindful of privacy concerns associated with uh, temperature screening, also associated with um, you know return uh, to work voluntary screening. Uh, somebody answers these questions, the people evaluating them must be limited to those on a need-to-know basis who will make the decision as to whether or not the person uh, can be coming in the uh, workplace or not. So we need to be mindful of the privacy concerns associated with the testing. Um, this is just like any other medical test, considered of the highest variety, even though it's just shooting, aiming and shooting in a hand, a touchless thermometer at someone's forehead. Uh, additionally, uh, same rules apply across this you know, employee screening as it does against, or as, it, as they apply across the waterfront, and that is, you can't desperately uh, treat folks, uh, you know, differently based on whether they're your favorite, whether you think they're malingering, or what have you. If you're going to test people, test people. If you're not going to test people, don't test people. You know, and have a good reason for it. Don't apply it um, uh, in some fashion uh, that someone can claim that I was only tested because of X. No, you were tested because you were employed here. Um, and as Kinder mentioned before, um, this type of testing is compensable unless it's a few seconds. So if you have someone certify, you know, the, the, the four or five questions uh, that we're going to talk about from the West Virginia uh, rule, fine. Probably not going to take more than four or five seconds. Uh, but if you have somebody waiting in line, get their temperature read and responding to those questions, et cetera, that's going to be compensable time. So before you treat it, you know, as it's not their time, it's time that we're required uh, them to expend, and therefore it is paid time. Mr. Kinder. You know, I'm always worried when I use the phrase social distancing that everybody's going to tune out because we've been hearing that phrase you know, nonstop for six weeks. But you know, there is no vaccine. It, this is still out there and you need to maintain safety in the workplace and that means social distancing models. That's, and it's also required under the federal guidelines 
and every state guidelines that we have seen. Um, and there is no one size fits all for this, although there's some common rules that will apply to everyone because everybody's business is different. Obviously, you're still talking about trying to maintain that six foot uh, buffer. Kevin talked about the limiting uh, the fraternization, which is weird, but is necessary for the reasons that he already discussed. Uh, it applies to break rooms and lunch rooms. And again, here is probably a situation where you can't make it one size fits all in the sense of I operate in an office setting in Roanoke, Virginia, Charleston, West Virginia, Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, you know, I can probably have people eating at their desk. I may not need to have a lunch room. And I can probably tell people we don't want you going out at lunch anymore, but be careful of the wage and hour implications of that. You're going to want to make sure folks are clearly uh, relieved of all of their duties if they're eating at their desk. And that means not looking at their email while they're, um, you know, eating the bologna sandwich that they brought from home. However, if I run um, an industrial concern in Pinsborough, West Virginia, I don't have that option. I probably need to have a lunchroom or a break room where people can eat because they can't eat at their station and West Virginia law requires me to provide a break. In that case, I'm gonna need to figure out ways to stagger break times and meal times so that folks can eat within the right framework in a socially distant way and that probably means going in ahead of time and moving the furniture in the lunchroom and the break room and blocking off seats and hiding chairs because if they're available somebody is going to go and grab one and go it's close enough to six feet let me rearrange these chairs and all of a sudden you have lost that sort of contained field and if somebody gets sick how are you ever going to track down um, who has been in contact with whom. If you are in an open office setup, that probably is gonna mean trying to figure out some way to set up at least some sort of a temporary barrier, like a cubicle system um, that creates some level of separation. And frankly, it means encouraging the use of face masks and other PPE within the workplace. As weird as that setup may feel, and it's gonna feel weird, uh, you're gonna need to do something if your setup is, I am, looking at all of my coworkers. I certainly don't want a situation where folks are gonna be face to face with each other in an open office format, because that just is uh, flagrantly asking for a concern of transmission of this particular uh, virus. Um, on office settings, you know, there's a big pinch point at the elevators, and that's probably going to encourage you to require folks to sort of stagger their on and off times, to, limit the rush to the elevators going on and going off. I would say definitely encourage folks to be using those on a solo basis, getting off and other folks get on and um, making sure they are using masks and PPE within the elevator while they are going up or going down. But again, one thing you can do is to avoid sort of, I call them a pinch point is, okay, everybody doesn't start work at 8.30. And I know there's you know old school thinking, that's when the day starts. You know what? You can start some people at 8.15, some people at 8.45, and it's gonna work fine. And tell folks, look, don't come in early, hang out in the cars, because we don't wanna have a big long line of folks trying to get into the elevator in a way that is impossible to um, properly social distance. Make folks know about the protocol, pass it out on an email form, make them acknowledge it, at least have some sort of return receipt for that. Um, 
in addition, you're going to have issues with not just your employees, but also, you know, visitors and vendors. A lot of businesses that are currently open have been doing it. And one is, look, we are business essential visitors only. Folks may grumble, but deep down inside, they're going to understand that. Now, post that conspicuously. Um, and we're going to talk about a, a little bit of some screens that you can require for visitors. If you have folks that come regularly, let them know ahead of time. You don't need folks to be surprised when they get to your office door, to the uh, gates of your facility. Um, but make sure folks know about all of that ahead of time. And keep in mind that you're not going to be able to tell, like the FedEx driver, we need you to sign that you aren't sick because they're not allowed to do that. And you need those deliveries. So that's why, you know, when Kevin was talking earlier about the idea of having a delivery point, that helps at least mitigate those particular risks um, as far as deliveries that are coming in. Again, with what we know of the virus, things that have been in transit for more than you know, 48, 72 hours, i.e. the mail, you're probably fine. Um, but make sure folks feel that they are comfortable if they are able to open up matters on, if they're getting deliveries with proper use of PPE. Now, there's a lot of other considerations, uh, you know, legal considerations. I know, Kevin, you were going to be uh, discussing some of those as well on how to mitigate some risks. Yeah, um, and backing up a little bit here, I, I'm looking through the PowerPoint. I know you love this, Kinder, when I back up. Uh, I don't know. We did not – I did not list the questions in here uh, that uh, – under no. the governor's small business guidelines. Well, you did uh, so promise, gonna, folks, we were going to cover those. I did promise, but I'm looking. I don't see where we're you going need, to. You need to deliver on your promise. Yeah. I'm going to deliver my promise. I'm sorry. So, um, and and if you uh, if you guys reach out, I'll get I'll literally email you copies of the entire guidelines. But under the screen employees, um, uh, and I'll I'll speak slowly. It says screen. Um, this is again for the small business group, which can open up the week of May the fourth. But it's going to be the same or more stringent for uh, for the big folks, and it's going to apply to the big folks. Uh, who are continuing continuing to um, to um, to work? Uh, screen all employees reporting to work daily for COVID-19 symptoms with the following questions: um, One, have you been in close contact with a confirmed case of COVID-19? Two, are you experiencing a cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, uh, etc.? So the CDC uh, um, um, symptoms. Number three, have you had a fever in the last 48 hours? Number four, have you had a new loss of smell or taste? And number five, have you had vomiting or diarrhea in the last 24 hours? So those are uh, the questions that we are required to ask as a screening under the small business uh, guidance for West Virginia. Um, I'm not gonna say that that is a substitute for temperature taking, uh, but it might be. Uh, so, um, Again, if you will email us, I will send you a copy of those guidelines if you don't already have them. And I apologize that I didn't include them on these slides. Okay, so uh, now moving forward in terms of uh, looking at, um, um, those are kind of the, prag those are legally underpinned pragmatic um, considerations associated with returning to work. There are a number more and they're site specific. So. A lot of these are going to depend on what your site, um, you know, uh, can accommodate. Are you in a standalone business, own your own building? Are you subject to a lease? 
Uh, do you have lease restrictions? Are you part of a, of a, uh, you know, an employer park, uh, in a business park? Are you in a strip mall or what have you? So we're going to have to look at those on a case by case basis to determine logistically what's practical, but all of them are underpin underpinned, uh, about, uh, you know, by these legal considerations. And we need to be thinking of them, uh, as we are opening, um, up, um, as it relates to, um, you know, bringing people back, I think of recall as kind of a reverse layoff. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy, you know, layoffs are, are easy if we're laying, they're not easy, but they're, they're legally less risky if we're laying off everybody. Okay. We're not, we're not picking winners and losers. We're laying off everybody. The risks there are lower. Why? Because I can't claim that it was because of my protected status. Uh, because there's 10 other people that don't look like me that are younger or older than I am, uh, that are of different race than I am, et cetera, they got laid off too. So bringing everyone back is kind of the flip side of that. That is, that's not a terrible, from a legal perspective, that's not a terrible uh, position to be in. However, uh, that's not always going to be practical. It's probably not always going to be practical for the short term for sure, because teleworking whenever possible is still the law of the land. But we may bring some people back. Um, if we were a non-essential business and we're reopening, we may bring some people back, in which case then we're going to have to pick with uh, winners and losers. And with that, um, you need to have non-discriminatory business, legitimate business reasons for deciding who, who are the winners who get to come back. Maybe those aren't the winners. Maybe <laughs> maybe the real winners are the ones who stay at home on unemployment. But winners and losers, the people who come in and, and or stay home. We have to um, do that as we would a layoff at the inverse. We've got to look at the functions and the skill sets that we need first without names, positions, or persons uh, attached to those. And then we need to consider any business revenue or operational logistical uh, limitations on um, whether or not we can bring certain classifications or com com combined duties, et cetera. And there are certain things that we can't um, we cannot consider, we can't consider obviously any of the protected statuses. We're, all, we're going to only bring back our young people. We're only, we're only going to bring back our white people. We're only going to bring back our females or our males. Uh, but an additional concern here is we, we don't want to make decisions based on some non-medically um, confirmed fear that someone is more susceptible to COVID-19 or others. I'm not going to bring back my person with asthma. I'm not going to bring back any of my people in the 60 or over category. You can't make those on a global basis. You can only come to those conclusions working through the interactive process on an, on an individual by individual basis. So, um, Mr. Kinder, do we, uh, have we seen and do we anticipate keeping, um, uh, keeping uh, a trend of employees uh, asking for accommodations in the face of this pandemic, and and how do we handle those situations? Well, we've already seen a, a huge increase in the number of accommodation requests, uh, and, and we've seen it in the context of I am more susceptible because some history of an illness, because of my age, because of pregnancy. Well, even though we are talking about the new normal a lot, all of the rules that we knew before still applied to these accommodation requests. So you're still entitled to request documentation uh, if something isn't you know, obvious or already known. And I've been preaching this for my 20 years uh, at Spillman. The interactive process 
as much as a pain as it sometimes can be, is your friend because it allows you to engage in a dialogue with your employee to figure out what accommodation is possible and, and what sort of thing you are able to do. Um, every accommodation request really is going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. As Kevin has mentioned, as I have mentioned, all of the guidelines, state and federal, every state I've seen, still says telework if possible. Well, let people telework if possible. Uh, you know, a lot of us grew up with an idea of, um, you know, you don't telework, you go into the office. Well, you know, that's changing. It's changing fast. And again, part of the new normal may be, hey, teleworking works great. I don't need the same office footprint that I paid before. That's going to be less rent. And I got employees that like teleworking. Maybe I can make that a benefit to them that I don't have to use as far as pay. So there's some good things there too. But again, make sure that you know, teleworking is still an available request. If it is working for you thus far, make sure that it works now and continue to use it. And everything also has been very clear. Really be considered. And the DOL that has looked at these sort of issues as far as paid leave issues, and I'm sure the EEOC when they start looking at ADA issues and your various state you know, human rights agencies, are all going to be very employee deferential. If there is an accommodation request that is possible, you are going to be expected to make it. And during this interim period, you're allowed to maybe forego some of the interactive process. You may be able to sort of shorten it and go straight to the point. You know what, normally I would want to engage with you on whether or not leave is possible, but considering the pandemic, tell you what, we're going to give you this, the leave that you have requested, or we're going to be letting you telework. In July, we'll revisit this and make a decision on whether or not this works, but we're going to put that off down the road as far as the interactive process. And also, if you have an individual that you know is going to need an accommodation because of issues that are before you that you've dealt with past claims for accommodation, feel free to initiate it. Feel free to reach out and say, what am I going to need to do when we reopen to make sure that this workplace is available and is functional for you? But bear in mind, all of the rules regarding an undue hardship still are going to be in play. They may be a little bit different in the current world, but they are still out there. And in fact, there may be situations where like, I can't do a full needs assessment, or I don't have the manpower, the number of people in the office to truly do temporary assignments or remove some marginal functions from somebody's job. I mean, obviously you can't take away essential duties, um, well, you can, but there is no obligation that we'd never tell anyone to do that. Um, but you can have folks that are making an accommodation and addressing an undue hardship in that way. Uh, but uh, bear in mind, if you ever have anybody that's reaching out to you with a religious accommodation request because of a mask, the standard there is a whole heck of a lot uh, lower. I mean, anything that is more than de minimis is something that you do not have to do. Um, again, you're going to get a lot of leave requests, and, and I'm, I feel like I'm racing through this a little bit, but we've already been going at it for 52 minutes. Um, but I know this is important, and we'll, we'll make these slides available as we have for all of our webinars. You're going to get them, we're going to get them, and 
bear in mind, if you're less than 500 employees, that FFCRA, remember that from, you know, ages ago, i.e. April 1, um, it's still in play. And it is still out there saying if an employee has been advised to self-quarantine by a healthcare provider, they get, and I'll just say 80 hours of paid sick leave, um, which is sort of the, the shorthand version. If you're interested in that, there are materials on our COVID task force, and I think we did a full webinar on the FFCRA. That's still a valid reason. Also, if somebody has symptoms and they leave for seeking treatment, that is a valid reason that they are entitled to paid sick leave under the FFCRA. And that would include the employee who comes in, you go through the checklist and they're like, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I am running in temperature and I do have, you know, real tightness in my chest. I was coughing all last night. You're sending them home. You're telling them to go get a diagnosis. If they make any efforts to do that, they're covered by the FFCRA and they are entitled to leave. Now, if you are recalling somebody and they say, I'm making more on unemployment, that's not a valid reason uh, to insist on leave. And in fact, that is a reason for you to be disqualified from unemployment benefits. Um, states are doing this differently, but that is the law in every state that is out there. Uh, it is vitally important to remember that just because I'm doing better under unemployment, I don't get to stay out on unemployment if I'm offered my job back. In uh, the state of Pennsylvania, I know there is a form. It's great. You can turn it in and say, we have made these recall offers. West Virginia doesn't have that. I would recommend that you reach out to the uh, local workforce West Virginia agency. This is going to be state by state, but obviously we can work with you on those particular questions. Um, but again, if they are valid leave requests, make sure that somebody, is, you're documenting it, you're following all of the necessary laws, because there are going to be people that are going to need that leave for a valid reason. But somebody that just says, yeah, I kind of like being out, getting my $600 plus, that is not a good enough reason. Now, part of the playbook is also going to be working on some policy issues. And, you know, Kevin, there's some advice there, right? Yes, thanks, Eric. Uh, and I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. I'm, I'm going to call an audible here um, uh, unless uh, Pamela emails me to the contrary that we can't do it. Um, anybody, feel free to drop off uh, at 11 o'clock. We want to be respectful of your time. Uh, but I've got we've gotten probably a dozen questions or more here that we haven't covered right. otherwise. And so we're just going to keep going until we finish answering the questions. So yeah. oh, feel yeah. free to drop off. Won't hurt our feelings. But Kinder, unless you got a, do you have a an important appointment at eleven o'clock, or can you keep going a little bit? Uh, I, I'm I'm here. Where am I going? That's right. Good home. point. Okay, so uh, we're going to keep going. Uh, we'll, and we'll we'll go through these, and then we'll make sure we answer all the questions asked. Uh, look, let's update our policies. I mean, there is some bandwidth. I'm sure folks have now. Uh, you know, because there's nothing else going on. You've got plenty of time twiddling your thumbs and human resources during this pandemic. Why don't you take some? Okay, I'm just joking. So I know you don't have any time, but you need to make a little time uh, to update your policies. Uh, you need to deal with what we're going to do and define what we're going to do on a leave of absence uh, basis, like Eric just talked about. And we could put a sunset on it and say, look, through July 31st, we're going to do X, or through December 31st, we're going to do Y. But we need to document those so that we have a playbook 
um, that employees can count on at least uh, during the short term. We can change it from time to time uh, as necessary, but you need to use good forethought and update your policies on leave issues, for instance. You need to update your policies on, as, as Eric said, for the next pandemic as well, but on your protocols for social distancing, et cetera, um, for your protocols on, you know, including the CRA, uh, the FFCRA, uh, leaves, et cetera, update your FMLA policy, et cetera. All those things should be updated, even though we may update them again um, post-pandemic, at least for the time being, uh, we need to have new written policies. Um, I think as a practical matter, um, you need to have, um, again, we're tempted in this world, you know, to kind of throw confidentiality out the window because of the impending nature of these requests and the gravity of them. Look, such and such employee, uh, you know, tested po you know, positive. Um, what are we going to do? Well, I mean, we have to balance that individual's privacy uh, with the, uh, the people uh, who are in the workforce who may have come in contact with that person. And so the first place we start um, is getting, you know, is, is meeting a, a small need-to-know group, meeting with the employee uh, by distance, uh, distancing measures, obviously, and finding out what's wrong with them, um, how long have they had symptoms, et cetera. We're permitted to do that under the interactive process. And then at some point during that call, we need to have the conversation with them about whether or not we have their permission to um, use their name in a notification that we're going to give to either a small group of potentially affected employees if we have good policies on isolation or to our entire workforce if we have a little less, uh, if we have a little, um, if, if we have less uh, robust policies on isolation. But, but um, we need to balance that, you know, they have the right of confidentiality. We have the right and obligation to notice our, notify our workforce how, desc how descriptive we're going to be uh, with that notification to the workforce. It's going to be a function of obtaining and documenting um, the uh, permission of the employee. And in my experience uh, working with clients who have had these conversations, every single one of them has been more than cooperative because the HR people who have handled those discussions uh, have been more than skilled at dealing with them. They're, you know, they're dealing with them on their issues first. They segue into a discussion of the fact that they have to provide notice, you know, and this contact tra tracing through the workforce, and we need their permission, and they've given it. Um, so, uh, again, don't, you know, the time for broad emails popping off uh, without, um, you know, to work quickly is in the backseat. In the forefront is employee confidentiality first, and then, uh, again, consent. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what we're calling uh, the new normal. Um, you know, um, you know, we got we have the legal issues we've talked about. We've got um, you know the pragmatic issues that underpin all of these, um, you know, all of these decisions that we're going to have to make. Um, we're going to have to transition into what absolutely will become a new normal. I do not believe. That certainly over the next year or year and a half or two years, um, we're going to have a workplace that is exactly like it was before, where there may be an occasional hand sanitizer bottle, you know, in the workplace, but not at every, you know, not at every public area, where, you know, where there are these protocols that, that we have on limiting access to our building. Those aren't going away anytime soon.
And so therefore this transition to a new normal has to be looked at as such. Like how do I thrive in the new normal, not just how do I get by? So the next uh, segment on the rest of the slides, we're going to talk about how we, um, you know, how we, how we need to view the workplace of the future in light of the lessons learned in the pandemic and in light of the legal and pragmatic considerations we've talked about uh, so far during this webinar. Mr. Kinder, um, let's talk about first what the new normal looks like with respect to uh, maintaining employee safety. Well, the big thing is making sure that you have proper hygiene stations available. I mean, and that is going to be, everybody has the ability to hand wash, everybody has the ability to use hand sanitizer if they are unable to wash their hands. Uh, you know, that's been in place for six weeks, eight weeks, that's been stressed from the very beginning, but everybody is saying that is a mandatory requirement. And that's also making sure that you are getting a very consistent cleaning and sanitizing routine. And that is making sure that your outside agency knows what they're doing. If you are um, having folks do that from outside in general, I would recommend having people that really know what they are doing do that um, within the context of the workforce. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, that got distracted because the questions are coming in and they are great questions uh that are coming i agree in. i agree uh, so okay I so let me ask you i mean that's the big thing is make sure that you have enough of the sanitizer make sure that you are going through daily and you are documenting what we are doing cleaning the common areas cleaning um and again it's the the, the bathrooms and i would say making sure that those are if before those were on a well once a day we're gonna have somebody come through and clean them once or twice a shift if you're full shift work or making sure that somebody's coming in uh, twice as often, three times as often, all of those sort of high touch areas are being cleaned and sanitized on a regular basis on a lot more of a, of a common and a lot more frequent of a, of a basis. Yeah, and, and so I think, and Eric, we haven't talked about this, but you correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but I think um, the days of not having um, you know, widespread a focus and attention on, on workplace hygiene, um, other than in places obviously like medical, um, scientific, and other, you know, and, and similar where, uh, where that's been in place for a year. But for the, for the regular office place, I think the days of relegating uh, some safety literature to the employee bulletin board where we post the wage and hour uh, postings, I think those days are over. I yeah. think that uh, sanitizing, uh, routines. I think that notification to employees, I think that considerations concerning masks and whether they can wear them in the workplace, well, they can, whether or not they must and whether or not visitors do. I think um, this focus will remain. And I think it not only because it's important from a safety perspective, but let's say that we've got 20 people that die you know, in our community from the flu a year or whatever that number is, and one of them is in our workplace or we get the flu two years from now, I think a jury says, wait a minute, Spillman, Thomas, and Battle, didn't you learn anything two years ago when the whole world shut down because of a pandemic? You put in some, you put in some, some um, documented, well-documented uh, protocols, and now they've gone away and we get somebody sick and die in the workplace. I think, I think not only for, is it the right thing to do, um, from a, from a safety perspective, I think it becomes a new standard of care, um, you know, going forward for other, not even just pandemics, for other Ill workplace illnesses. What do you think? 
I absolutely agree. And I think as you are communicating that information, you need some sort of electronic sign off. And one of the questions we got is, well, I don't really have the ability to do an electronic signature on something. You at least have the ability to get um, a return email. Yes, I read it. Put that into a file with the uh, employee. They, they received it. They acknowledged receipt. Um, if you're going to do it the old-fashioned paper way where, you know, we've killed plenty of trees, have folks do a sign-off sheet. Make sure that you have some sort of acknowledgement on that. Um, I don't think we ever cover this. We got a really great question on what do you do as far as customers in a retail setting. And frankly, you're allowed to restrict access. And Kevin, you tell me if you think I'm wrong on this, uh, to folks to, to make sure that they are at least you know, compliant on a temperature standpoint, that they are safe. The issue you are going to have on that front going to be twofold you know number one that's your lifeblood is making sure that you've got customers and do you want to run that particular risk um with, with your customers and, and the clients in the retail business and second making sure that you are doing that consistently because you do not want word coming out true or false you know you know the eric kinder's um you know one-stop shop is only doing temperature checks of the African-American customers. You know, one, that's terrible yeah. if true, but even if the word gets out, it's terrible for your business. But I mean, I, you have the ability within that reason to restrict your business. What I think mostly you're going to be doing is having your folks at, and we're going to cover this a little bit, at the uh, cashier's spots, making sure there are screens that are up, making sure they are given proper PPE because those folks are really on the front lines of any sort of um, contagion uh, transmission. That's right. So um, I, I mentioned the questions a, uh, a little bit, and I, I promise we'll provide the guidelines in, in total to you uh, if you need them. Uh, as it relates to small businesses, and again, the ones for big businesses uh, who are already open and the ones who are big businesses who are closed have been non-essential. Will be open they will be at least um this strict uh but we need to look at limiting occupancy we need to look at teleworking where possible um and providing for reasonable social distancing i had a, a an early question um well two early questions of relevance here uh the first one was what happens if you have only two to five people in the office do you still suggest temperature check asking the questions etc yeah yeah i do um i think as a practical matter um you know, the requirements for small businesses are pretty clear. And if we're going to not do those things, if we're not going to ask the questions, which they tell us we should ask, we better have a real good reason. And just being small isn't a real good reason because these are applicable to small businesses. So yeah. good question, but I think the answer is, yeah, you still need to go through them. Um, yeah. now, another a good issue, reason may be sorry, I can't find one of those no-touch thermometers. And yep. you know, the, the supply chains are better than they were, but there are still issues. Now, that would also be, I think, a valid reason. But I would document, well, I tried to place this order. They, they were out of stock. That's right. That's right. I, I got a question, a couple questions, actually, about cube farms, as I call them. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. But uh, workspaces with rows of cubicles. Open space arrangements. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Open space arrangements. That uh, there's little way to, to social distance in cubes. Well, I, I mean, not to be snarky, but it, well, it depends on how many cubes you're going to fill. So one of the things here we've talked about is 
looking at let, letting people telework and come back in staggered shifts. And for now, maybe only, you know, maybe you don't look like the Hollywood squares with every square filled with a human being. Maybe you have to have every other cube filled. Or maybe you have to look at a way, uh, you know, to extend upward uh, from the cube. Or maybe you have to look at whether or not there are different, you know, different arrangements uh, for individuals to work staggered shifts. So, you know, half come in in the morning shift, half in the afternoon. So it's going to be a function of your business and what the operations can. But I don't think there's – you've got to exhaust all of your creativity, uh, whether you're in a um, – an open space workplace? Is that right? What you call it? Yeah. Uh, open space. Workplace. Yeah, or not. That's right. Um, I had another question. I love it. Uh, if you don't allow employees to leave the office for lunch, do you allow 65 people to put their lunch in and retrieve it from the fridge, <laughs> use microwave, et cetera? Good. So, uh, no, don't. So, I mean, if you allow people to go out, uh, and, and eventually we're going to, but for now, a lot of employers are not allowing folks to go out in the workplace. Have them bring their lunch. Have them, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a cold bologna sandwich or a cold turkey bologna sandwich in a small cooler uh, the way my grandfather packed every day of his working life. And so um, I'm with you, but, uh, you know, and I love a hot cup of coffee uh, that someone else brews, you know, every day in our office as much as anyone else. And I as love long as it's going out. See, as long as it's decaf. I do not do caffeine because I'm, I'm this way without Sorry. it, okay? Uh, but um, I think as a practical matter, these are times when the niceties of going out to eat or the niceties of bringing in, you know, salmon that we, you know, warm up in the, in the, the microwave and pollute the entire second floor at Spillman. Uh, I think those days uh, are a little bit further off and we may need to make some decisions in the short term that are better uh, for us in the long term. Because all this said, when we, if we have, no social isolation, no protocols, et cetera, and we get a COVID-19 positive, your workplace is going to be upended for a period of time, whether it be a week or two weeks. And so I suggest to you that having people just bring their lunch and eat it in their offices for a short period of time, while it may not meet some politician's idea of re, you know, resurging or returning to normal or what have you, it's going to serve your business and more importantly, your bottom line better. In the, in the long run. So, yeah. And good and question. Kevin, I mean, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt at first. Yeah, that's right. I've apologized for the salmon incident. I'm really sorry. Um, yeah. but <laughs> second, I mean, the point you made there is, I think, vitally, it, it, it's, it, it's critical to keep in mind the idea of this sounds onerous and it sounds like a real pain in the tuchus. Um, but you know what's really going to be a pain is when somebody comes. In, in a workplace and says, I just tested positive for COVID-19, and all of a sudden, you got to clean out your, you know, the entire floor of folks and send them home for two weeks. Yeah, I had a question. I have another question here. Uh, are unions cooperating with companies? Man, um, I would say it depends. If the companies are providing a additional pay, whether it be additional sick leave for for a sunset, you know, through, through a sunset or, or what have you. And I've been dealing with a lot of unions on this. It's pretty much what I do. Um, unions seem to be a lot more cooperative than when we than when we don't provide additional sick leave or hazard pay or what have you. So I think the cooperation and it varies from union to union. Some are better than others, and I'm not going to mention names because I don't, you know, I, I like my house and I don't want it egged or what have you. But 
uh, I I would say um, unions are unions are fairly cooperative and are much more so when there is some form of additional comp or leave provided for even a short period of time than it's called for by the collective bargaining agreement. Um, but a good question. Um, another uh, question we have here is um, where, you know, basically uh, when someone says, hey, I can't work at home, I'm fine. But my, you know, my 90 my year old mother is living with us and, um, you know, and she's fine, but she's 90 and she's got asthma and, and I don't want to bring it home to her, et cetera. And you've already kind of touched on this, Kinder, and it's a balancing act. But for me, um, you know, not only do we satisfy our legal obligation to consider teleworking as much as possible, it's also a solution for a lot of, you know, certainly non-manufacturing opportunities like this. If there is a situation where someone has, um, you know, particularly for someone we want on the team long term, uh, has the ability to work from home, then yeah, we continue to work from home. Uh, we monitor productivity. We insist on, on being efficient. We insist on, uh, you know, getting the work done you need to from home, but you work from home. If it's not someone who can work from home, that's where we go back to, well, we better established our leave of absence practice and policy updated it, even if it's for a short term. What are we going to do in those situations if there's no work from home? And whatever we decide, we can pretty much do in that situation. So there is not, you know, the person's not COVID-19 positive. It's a generalized fear of transmission. The employee doesn't have a doctor's note saying, hey, they've got a quarantine. The individual's not sick. We're, you know, assuming we're essential business, assuming we have a policy, um, we can set that policy what we want. We can say in all situations like that, we're going to give you, you know, five days to use your vacation, but then you've got to come up, you've got to come, you know, and make your own arrangements at home to separate yourself from your mother, your grandmother, your mother-in-law or whatever. Um, but, but we have to have that policy in place to decide what works for our culture. And we have to be willing to apply it across the board. So if it's your worst employee coming to you with the 90 year old mother situation or your best employee coming to you with your 90 year old mother situation, your policy better be able to treat both of them the same. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the masks and protective gear. And again, remember you're, you're the people that are dealing with the public, um, and if you would have hit the hit the slide, we'll move forward. Well, you're going back through and seeing the questions that we missed, and I'm we're getting tons yeah. of really amazing questions. Um, yeah, we are. But really, keep in mind that you know the people that you have up front that are dealing with your uh, with, with with the public are going to be you know on they're on the front lines. Make sure they are given the necessary PPE. Make sure they're comfortable, and that's some part of employee engagement um, and making sure that. All of your employees know what you are doing because when you reopen, folks are going to be scared and they're going to be concerned. And sometimes when you get scared and concerned employees, you find people that are there that want to represent the employees that aren't necessarily on your payroll. And this is not the time to be allowing um, your friendly neighborhood union rep to be creating a divide in the workplace anymore. That is absolutely necessary. One of the questions I saw was, how long are folks going to be uh, needing to use these masks and PPE? I don't know. I mean, we're all watching and we're all keeping a, an eye to see exactly how we are handling the, this health crisis. And sitting here in West Virginia, uh, as I shared with Kevin the other day, one of the really 
good facts is we have a very low testing rate. Uh, and, you know, we'd really like to keep it that way. I mean, we're under 3% testing positive, which is, which is fabulous. Um, but other states aren't in that position. We want to make sure that, you know, we are maintaining at a, at a plateau 3% or less uh, for the good of everybody. And so how long? You know, it's really going to depend on how long this remains a, a threat. And that is going beyond my education. Yep, I'm with you. Well, I'll tell you. Moving on to the next slide, and, and we'll keep we'll keep answering questions. Um, you know, communication is the great salve, and it's no different. You know, good. I've read. Um, oh God, I don't know how many employee communications during this, but a lot, both internally at my firm, lots of external, obviously more external than that, and there are some really good communicating organizations, and those are typically your healthier organizations on the on the front end. But when people are scared. And are anxious not just because of the sickness, but maybe you know maybe they're the, I mean they they're not working generally. Most people aren't working uh, for you because they love you. Uh, uh, they may love what they're doing, but I'd say that if they had the choice of winning the lottery uh, or working for our organization, they'd probably pick lottery 99.9% um, .9 of the time. And so they're worried about keeping their jobs, and that's when you know. It, for me, um, that is why communication as to what our return to work plans are, you know, providing ample notice, providing them on the front end with a description of the protocols, the fact that we have a playbook, the identification of the return to work team and the coordinator thereof, et cetera, it's so important because when people are scared and are anxious about not only the illness, but about their employment and what the, you know, how to do things differently, you know, we're moving people's cheese, et cetera. Communication is the great salve. So we must be engaged as far in advance as humanly possible with our employees before they return to work. Don't bring them back to work and the morning they get there say, hey, here's what we're doing. You know, you've got to have a week out or as much time as you can out um, to make sure your employees know about the policies and procedures that are going to apply to them, the mechanisms we are putting in place to keep them safe, um, the fact that those could obviously change, but here's our plan. They have to know you have a plan for ensuring their safety when they come back. Uh, so I think, um, you know, I think that employee engagement on the front end, as it always is, when we're increasing their health insurance contributions, we give them notice, you know, as much as we can. When we're changing overtime rules, we give them as much as we can. It's even more important now on these. So do not, you know, wait uh, until the end and uh, provide, you know, on their day back to work, the plan. Provide them with the plan on the front end. Um, hey, Kevin, I was going to take uh, one question, uh, if you don't mind. It was a really interesting one, which is, when a vaccine becomes available, can you require your employees to get it? Um, and I would say the general rule, uh, pending more guidance from the EEOC, would be, no, you cannot require your employees to undertake that sort of a medical procedure. If it is common enough, you can certainly bring a nurse in or uh, to provide that in your facility and make it available and make it easy for folks. Um, but other than probably you know, healthcare, nursing homes, things like that, it's gonna be very difficult to make that a mandatory part of employment without further guidance from the EEOC because that has generally been a, a front upon action as far as um, you know, health, 
it would be in the uh, same realm as requiring somebody to undertake some, you know, a non-medically necessary um, health, health screen. It's, it, they've always taken a very dim view on that. And of course, your issue is going to be that you're also going to have to take into account accommodating folks if they bring in a religious uh, reason or you know, a health reason. Some folks actually do have allergies uh, to the, the agents that are used in vaccines, and I'm not trying to go off on an anti-vaxxer rant, I'm just saying there are some people that actually do have a literal allergic reaction uh, to that. You're gonna to need to be considerate of those individuals. I'm glad you're not going on an anti-vaxxer rant, uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Kinder. Thank Sorry. you. Um, <laughs> when, um, I mean, I, I don't sure... think that's probably, you know, Eric Kinder is an anti-vaccine. No, I'm just saying, you know, you're going to need to be wary of the need to accommodate folks. That's right. You're right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about working with reduced staff. Again, um, when we when we when we are working with re reduced staff, um, we want to make sure that we update our job descriptions, even if those job descriptions are for a two month period or a one month period. Why? Because how we how could we ever hold someone accountable for not um, performing up to our expectations in a modified job unless we've told them what those expectations were so think about your job duties if we are altering you know uh jobs based on returning people to work in in waves uh or in shifts um i would also be prepared to understand that we may you know we may have cases spike we may have reopening plans um uh, taking a step back during this hammer and dance period, as others have described it, and we need to be flexible. I mean, again, um, I think starting, uh, you know, stopping full-blown and then restarting full-blown and then stopping again full-blown is going to be less in conducive to your continuity of operations than looking for ways to uh, integrate your workforce back work back into the workplace in a smart, measured uh, fashion. And again, while teleworking is you know is you know people can debate its merits um, uh, left and right. I think this is probably validated um, you know validated some degree that we can work uh, more efficiently from a teleworking capacity than we thought we could. Um, it is undeniable that if you have, if you're, you know, if you got an option between teleworking and no working, teleworking more often than not is going to provide more revenue to the bottom line. So, so I would, you know, be prepared to be flexible, and going all in um, is a risky proposition. It's a higher, uh, maybe a higher reward, but certainly a higher risk. Um, and lastly, go ahead, and we'll, uh, there's probably some more Q and A, and Kevin, I'll let you flip through those a little bit. If and I'll just sort of hit the ideas of making sure to train managers. Remember back at the beginning of this presentation, we talked about putting together a playbook. Well, make sure that all of your managers are familiar with it and are um, well-versed in the topics so that they know who to recommend uh, to go to, what sort of issues they are. If you have a, an isolation officer or a medical control employee, make sure that person is on staff. I don't know necessarily all the state-by-state state rules. I don't want to be giving advice on that, but my advice is if you have a volunteer that is in charge of that, ideally it is somebody with some health training. I mean, if you have somebody that is you know, a licensed nurse or a former nurse, that is ideal, but maybe you have somebody that's an EMT 
um, somebody that's a volunteer firefighter with some of that training, or somebody that at least has knowledge of first aid and training in that, that's ideal for that sort of a uh, position. Um, and you're going to want to make sure that those managers are able to communicate, as Kevin was talking about earlier, making sure that those lines of communication are always open. Get the manager, get the key employee buy-in. If you are a represented unionized workforce, making sure that those folks are also in the loop, are buying in, because you don't need them pushing back, pushing back, pushing back. Um, or this is never going to work. And make sure all your managers know all of the privacy issues that are related to COVID-19. So if you have somebody that fails a screening, you know, they know to keep that as quiet as possible. If somebody is sick, they come to you, they report they are ill, they have been diagnosed. Well, unless they have given you permission, as Kevin talked about, make sure that your managers know not to share that confidential health information. That's right. Eric, I think we've more or less touched on uh, the majority of the questions. Uh, we will put these slides uh, out. We will um, um, push to you guys uh, who want it, uh, the, the state guidelines. Um, we do take um, pride on our website in trying to be timely, but we're, we're going we're gonna to be right rather than be first. And so, um, you know, what, what you see on our website, uh, you can take to the bank. And we're trying not to engage in speculation, but instead in a fact-based, uh, pragmatic analysis. So, um, come, you can feel free to go to our task force uh, page regularly. It's at spillmanlaw.com. There's I, there's a bright red or bright orange. I can't remember tab up top that'll take you there. Um, if you do have you know questions or need legal counsel, of course, feel free to reach out to us or to your own um, labor counsel. I do. I'm excited personally about um, returning you know get, returning uh, to a higher degree of normalcy. Again, we're not going to have a normal in my opinion. But I am. Um, I, I do want to make sure that employers do so uh, in a manner that minimizes the risk, maximizes efficiency, you know, allays employee concerns and anxiety in a way that, that, that again, makes us all more uh, productive uh, because there is an integration, obviously, among the you know our communities, et cetera. So, thank you all very much for everything. Thank you for asking a ton of questions. If for some reason um, you have any additional ones or, or need anything, uh, feel free to reach out to us. I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Anything further, uh, Mr. Kinder? No, I really appreciate everyone's uh, patience for our hour-long webinar going to uh, 87 <laughs> minutes. But um, th th that's because we have had a lot of great questions. So yep. thank okay. you all very much. So thanks, everyone. Yeah, everyone uh, be safe and have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye.